Last time I was very insistent on sort of keeping the conversation locked to the painting, which was very exciting. We're going to sort of roam a little bit, a little bit um, more closely, I think we should roam closely, uh, to Maggie's formation as an artist and other things. I'm not a psychoanalyst. So I'm not here, as it were, sitting in a chair with Maggie on a, on a kind of sofa somewhere, <laughs> and I'm expecting her to, to speak. And I, I don't necessarily have a key to those kinds of questions. But we thought we would at least start again with the painting for the moment. It is here. It's in the Freud Museum. Um, Maggie, so why is it here, and is that significant for you? Well, I suppose somebody thought it was a good idea to uh, remove it to here from the National Portrait Gallery, where it normally hangs, and... Uh, I'm, I'm told that a lot of parties of school children sit in front of it and make drawings of it, and uh, uh, it's quite a popular picture. I suppose a child might interpret it rather better than me. I can, I can only say um, that uh, it's quite an important painting, uh, and rather, and it led to a lot of other paintings. For instance, the self-portrait in that uh, photograph of me by Eamon McCabe. That was uh, done many, many years later, but it referred back to this painting, which was done in, uh, do you happen to know when I did it, Dawn at all? This painting? Yes, this one, I mean. 70... 70-something. 70, 70, 70, oh, yes, very good, yes. At least somebody has some facts here. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's very difficult to remember, you know, as I've been painting since I was 14, about 1970-something uh, or something. Like. Um, it's difficult to remember, actually, when you did things, but anyway, this is sort of 70s, and uh, there is a big bare canvas, and I think I... Uh, as it happens with self-portraits, you tend to paint a self-portrait when you're not deeply involved with painting someone else, you know. And so it was going to be a self-portrait, which it is. And I'm surrounded by things that uh, meant something. You see, there's a cat uh, called Omd, who always considered that that was her chair in my studio. So I always had to sort of share it with her, half a buttock on, you know, and the rest belong to her, and the various versions of her tail going round, and a little man doing card tricks I'd seen in a pub near me in Clapham, doing card tricks rather unsuccessfully, in order that people would buy him a drink, and he didn't get many drinks, he wasn't very good at it, but a very, very strong memory, and that was, um, that's a money plant growing out of... Uh, that side of the canvas, and the leaves of a begonia, they, those plants stood on the windowsill in that studio in Battersea. And at the bottom you see a tomato, you see I had a grow bag, and I managed to produce one tomato out of several plants <laughs> and so, at the bottom, you see. And it was sort of painted, began, begun anyway in the autumn, and so autumn leaves are kind of coming into the top of the space and leaving from the bottom. Um, I was very fond of penguins, so I put a penguin. Uh, seagulls. Uh, all right, sorry, turn. Turns were quite often turning about in the sky outside the studio window, and I was always watching them, so that turn went in. Um, Concord, the great Concord, flew over uh, a couple of times a day, and I always watched her the most beautiful plane I think most of us have seen pass over, so the Concord is there. The pufferfish. Uh, which I was rather identified with, sort of puffed itself up to make itself important, you know, and then went back to a normal size. And an adder about to, which pretends to be dead before pouncing, um, this all had some kind of a meaning. Um, 
This is uh, a photograph from a colour supplement at the time um, by Brassai, the series of uh, photographs he'd made in Brussels, and I thought it was a very sexy picture, so I collaged that onto the canvas. Um, as you see, uh, three hands, one for the brush, one for the cigarette, one for the drink, which, of course, we all need, and these uh, clay, this little clay clown and the teapot were made by the person I was in love with, and this is the nude of the person I was sleeping with. <laughs> is that enough? I think that's great. Um, so I my, basically my life was in a muddle, um, as uh, happens quite often, and I just put all the things into it that I loved. I think Picasso once said he put whatever he loved at the time into a painting and let them all get on with it, you know, let them all just get on with it. And the, the point about there was no conscious composition. Wherever I made a kind of accidental blot of paint on this big-ish uh, canvas, I put another object. So it sort of composed itself. You just said yourself, um, or you, you introduced the next question I was going to ask, which is that you did say that you were in a muddle when the painting was done. Was it cathartic to paint? Cathartic. Does that mean therapeutic? I think it means... What does it mean? Um, it, it means that you, 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 you sort of expunge some of the painful and tragic experiences that you've had and come out the other side. Well, I don't know. That's a bit intellectual. Um, it is a help, you know. Uh, Let's say therapeutic. All right. I understand that. Yes. Um, I agree with Henry Moore. Where I, he said that... Uh, his work was his therapy, and I completely agree with that. I, you know, I do go pottier than ever if I don't work for a day and a half or something. I mean, I have to do it, otherwise I go pottier than I am already. Does that make any sense? But is this more kind of personal than most of your paintings up to that point? Everything I do is personal, Dawn. But I mean, well, I mean, self-revelatory. You said you identified in some respect with the puffer fish, which I found curious. Well, we all sort of put on our parts, don't we? I mean, when we make appearances, uh, even at breakfast, even in some occasions, I mean, or, or we are, um, when we're going to be in a social situation, um, I, I'm very aware of, uh, of my, the defences I put up, um, because I think that people are really, on the whole, pretty frightening, and, and they also have a ten tendency uh, to, they can eat you up, and I rather prefer choose the people that eat me up, and so that is why uh, I have a, a persona, apparently, of, of uh, being rather gruff. <laughs> Only to hide the sort of jelly baby inside me. You know, but we all have these defences and things we put out there, don't we? Does I mean, so we're not, we don't kind of disappear, be Going back. We, we were talking about mascara on the way downstairs. And <clears throat> as it happens, Dawn and I were both particularly fond of uh, Princess Borghese mascara. I didn't know that before this evening. <laughs> and we both discovered that you could no longer in this country get Princess Borghese mascara, which is terrible thing for us. <laughs> and we're both on Longcombe at the moment, you see. But that's another part of the, uh, you know, it used to be called the war paint, whatever, whatever one does as uh, one's war paint. We agreed we would go back a little bit to childhood, to kind of beginnings. I mean, do you think this sense of being threatened by a lot of people outside and putting on a terrific face to 
confront it goes back to your childhood, to your school days? <laughs> well, I think, uh, I mean, the very, yes, I mean, uh, uh, I suppose with the appearances, I had a jolly upbringing in Suffolk, in the fields, and then eventually at the age of nine, I was finally given a dog, which I'd wanted all my life, and uh, I lived in a kind of fantasy of uh, being just William, and when I did Desert Island Discs, I took a complete just with him with me and so I lived in this sort of fantasy of being just with him um, but there was a, a lot of uh, tension um, when I was a child because uh, uh, I mean both my brother and sister were 11 and 9 years older than me so it's like being an only child and there was this thing of the photographs always because they were photographed at each stage the very grand studio portrait photographs and they were never really, I think they sort of thought with all that. You. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> never really. <laughs> I mean, that was one of my sort of deep things about, um, I thought if I could ever be a bit famous, there'd be lots of photographs. I mean, that started very early on. I'm not saying that's a good thing at all, but it's just a fact. And uh, uh, I think by the time I came along, and it was rather a miracle that I did, because um, my father really preferred men by that time. And so uh, my mother was always putting a brave front on things, endless charades at Christmas and the rest of it, and this uh, um, um, being funny. You know, being funny. Um, he was a lot of the time out of the house. He was a very distant figure in my childhood. And we really only came together in my 20s when I gave him some paints and he started to paint. And uh, that painted before the whole of Suffolk, where he'd lived all his life, began to pour out of him in these marvellous paintings. Uh, and that's what really brought us together. And so for the last part of his life, we were very close. But throughout the childhood, um, he was a sort of distant figure. And uh, I think my mother was trying to be both mother and father to me. And there was great pressure all the time to um, perform, be funny, really to cover up um, what was the truth. When did you realise what was the truth? Well, I late on in the teens, really. But I mean, when, art, when by accident art began, <coughs> I say by accident because... I was 14 at school and there was an art exam and I did nothing but flick paint at people and generally draw attention to myself because I was deeply in love with the biology mistress <coughs> who was invigilating, right? And I did nothing but draw attention to myself. And then I saw the clock, it was 20 past 3 and at half past 3 we got a hand in a painting. So I did one, you know, 10 minutes. And the results, when the results came out till three weeks later, I was top of art. I thought, well, this is a jolly good business. You know, you don't, you don't have to try. You're good at it. You know, that's great. So then I began to sort of look into this thing. And, um, and when she said to me, you know, it's, it's the thing you have for yourself. It's not to do with anyone else. It's your own thing that you're doing. <coughs> and... Um, I began by trying to paint the night sky out of the uh, window of where we lived in Suffolk uh, until two in the morning and taking them into school the next day and they were all sort of spread out and the other girls were laughing at them and the, the art teacher came into the room and I was sort of on the point of tears and she sort of took me on one side and said, what's the matter? And I said, well, I did these paintings till two o'clock in the morning and and everyone's laughing at them. And so she took me on one side and said, uh, but that has to be water off a duck's back. Don't take any notice of what anybody says about anything, any critics or anything. Don't take any notice. You know, just be true to yourself, and uh, it's nothing to do with anyone else. So that was a great thing to be said to me at the age of 40. And I realised that, you know, in my bedroom, 
making those first paintings. Uh, it, was, it was this trying to get into the truth and no kind of pretense and charades. And that's what painting well, that's was what giving you the... That's yes. what, you know, was making it possible to try and get at something that was true and not uh, to cover up. So it was almost a kind of reaction to your family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yes. my lifesaver, yeah. Was that really when you started to think, right, painting is for me when you were 14, or did it go back a bit... Than that. No, 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 no. I mean, I remember always drawing, and the same art teacher, she's dead now, she's called Yvonne Drury, and she was a practicing painter and stuff. Uh, and I remember her coming up to me rather nervously when I was about 12, I think, and she said, um, and she said, uh, You always draw. Um, I'm beginning to wonder if you're colorblind. And so, I, sorry, because I painted a picture to show I wasn't colorblind, but you know, the drawing was always there. and. Uh, then later at art school, one of the teachers at Ipswich Art School said to me, well, you know, the drawing is the male side and colour is the female side. And what happens you know, as you go on is quite often at art school, the girls seem to be way ahead of the boys because they have a natural thing with colour and paint and the boys don't. But boys catch up on the colour and paint, but the girls very seldom catch up on the drawing. I mean, as Picasso said, we're all... Uh, you know, made up of male and female, and you have to bring the whole thing together to make a work of art. But I'd always sort of done the drawing bit, possibly to do with my brother bringing me up as a brother. I was as well, yes. You know, because he, I know my mother had to come back from hospital where she'd had me in Sudbury and kind of confess to him that she'd had a girl and he'd wanted a brother. So he took no notice of the fact I was a girl, he just brought me up as a brother, you know. And I was once given a doll, and it went straight to the woodshed and was sawed into small pieces. <laughs> so no more dolls. So anyway, you, you so the drawing was yet. always there. Yes. And then, you know, well, it's a bit of colour in this, you know. And did, what, did, what did your parents, how did they take this decision of yours to the paint, to be an artist? Well, well uh, I, 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 I think they were a bit, a, bit, a bit worried about it, yes, a bit worried about it. But luckily, on the edge of Hadley, where I grew up in Suffolk, there was a place known as the Artist's House, uh, where Cedric Morris and Lett Haynes had the East Anglian School of Painting and Drawing. It's where Lucian Freud had started um, many, 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 many years before me. Um, <coughs> and uh, so I took the first two oil paintings uh, there one summer evening and uh, to get some sort of reassurance for my parents that, that this was a good idea. And I remember knocking on the door Let came to the door, he was very tall and stately and rather frightening, and I said, I said, is Sir Cedric Morris at home, please? And he said, Cedric Morris is having his dinner. So I said, well, uh, wait, please, because having got up the courage to go there, I wasn't going to go away again. So I I went in, and Cedric was having this dinner of uh, course after course. I didn't see him quite like it. Let was wandering around with a the gin and French and bringing these various dishes and Cedric was sitting at the end of a long table and he was very chatty and giggly and, and funny and he said at the end of his dinner he said well put the paintings up there on that radiator thing we'll have a look at them and so I put them up there and he made certain criticisms I was 15 and but it was very encouraging and then Let wandered back in and made entirely the opposite criticisms but <laughs> was very encouraging and then Led said, well, I suppose you're still in school. And I said, yes. And he said, well, why don't you come along and paint on the holidays? And so the first day of the holidays, I was there, but I was too shy to go up to the house. So I sat in the ditch 
at the end of the drive and painted the ditch you know, <laughs> until a wonderful, wonderful old lady called Lucy Harwood, who was a student. She was about 90, but anyway, she was a student. And she came down the drive ringing a cowbell and calling me in, so I went in. And that's where life really began because I worked with Lett in the kitchen. He was a great cook and ran everything. And that's where he said, if you're going to be an artist, your work must be your best friend. And I mean, that was an incredible thing to say to somebody at 15. And uh, that's how I've lived my life. But I mean, what a privilege for somebody to say that. The other great thing, well, he said many great things. I remember him saying, I said, um, how do you know when you're in love? And Let said, well, it's quite clear to me you've never been in love. And so I said, well, how do you know that? And he said, well, because you wouldn't ask me the question. Mm-hmm. I mean, so this sort of dialogue went on with him. The other great, one of the great things he said was, there's no earthly point in trying to be an artist unless you have imagination. So these two things were said to me very early. And the sort of the priority of life there was the work. I mean, Cedric was a great gardener. People came and went. Uh, let grumbled the whole time when he was cooking. Because <coughs> he was a very great cook. And he, um, you know, he used to grumble all the time with me in the kitchen saying, saying that buggers don't appreciate it. May as well give him ham sandwiches. I know why I'm wasting my time. Because he really wanted to be upstairs in the studio painting, which gave me a huge hatred of cooking, which has remained with me. Because he wanted to be upstairs working all the time, instead of looking after and cooking for other people. Why did he sacrifice himself like this? Well, Let and Cedric had fallen in love uh, on Armistice Night, 1918, whatever. He was married at the time, but that had to be sort of got rid of, and uh, he he was actually represented in England in shows of the avant-garde with Man Ray and Duchamp and all of that, but then he gave his life, really, sacrificed his own career as an artist to looking after Cedric, and from, you know, doing everything for Cedric, uh, promoting Cedric, which which I think is a great shame, because I think Cedric Morris is, a, you know, a pretty considerable painter, but there are a lot of us who think Leth was really the artist and he sacrificed his own thing for, for Cedric. Yeah. Out of love. Out of love. T- talking about that love. problem. Yes. I mean, you did say that you were deeply in love with your biology teacher when you were at school. Uh, even though Let said you could never have been in love, obviously you, you had. So, did you know that you preferred women from the pretty young age, or, or was it not quite as clear as that? Well, I know that. I think the most extraordinary person I saw as a child when I was walking down Hadley High Street with my mother was um, a woman who had blonde curls, kind of false blonde curls, slapped on her forehead. Mine are all real, but uh, anyway, false, false hair. And I mean, tons of makeup and a black fur coat and very high heel shoes and chain, I think, round her ankle. And I was absolutely, I don't think any child would be absolutely fascinated by this vision. And I was always saying to my mother, who is that lady? Who is that lady? Why doesn't she come to our house? Can we have her for drinks? And you know, my mother was, was, was always crossing the road to go to the other pavement. Well, <clears throat> I had no idea who this person was. I learned le- le- later. I bent an end, she was called. You won't believe this, but it's true. Queenie Mole. <laughs> and she was for Hadley Hall. And so, I mean, that had been a big kind of vision. And then, you know, I mean, at a girls' school, most people have crushes and all the rest on other girls and teachers and all that. And 
My brother's bringing you up as a boy, anyway. My brother's bringing me up. That's quite muddling. Mm. And, um, I mean, I've been sent to the young conservatives and young farmers and all that. That lasted about three weeks. I didn't <laughs> go to work. And, uh, <clears throat> anyway, so I left school halfway through A-level and went to Ipswich Art School for a couple of years before coming to Camberwell. Uh, that was 62 to 64 at Ipswich and then 64 to 67 Camberwell. Which is fantastic, because it was, you know, the 60s, London, art school, grants, as opposed to the horror of nowadays. I was so lucky. But I was a virgin. I was 19, came to London, and I was a virgin. As one was, sorry, you know, in those days. Not unusual. Not unusual. Um, and I, I, having done absolutely nothing, I had a list, you see, a list of various possibilities I thought I... What sort of... Well, okay, well, sort of younger man, older man, black man, woman. I couldn't think of anything else. <laughs> I mean, no animals, no children. But <clears throat> anyway, so I, I tried it all out and decided what I liked best. You, you tried it all out? And oh, yes. yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it gave us a good opportunity. Yes, yes. I couldn't think of anything else to put on the list. I no. thought, well... Oh, God. You see, the funny thing was the first year at Camberwell, when most people were much faster than me, and I was so aware of this virginity that um, I wore my mother's fox fur around my neck, dyed my hair red, and made her buy me a long black leather coat so that I didn't look quite as virginal as I was. You see, so I looked more or less like the keeper of a brothel anyway. And, and, people, and, and the girls who came to me for advice on contraception, I mean, I mean what the hell I told them? During that first year at Camberwell, I, I can't imagine what I told them. I had a clue. But anyway, <coughs> I sort of looked as if I knew. So I came to the end of the first year at Camberwell, I thought, well, I've got to do something about this. So, you know, I went through my list. And um, the woman came top. <laughs> Next question. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, what about your brother? Did he, did he, what, how did he take having treated you as his younger brother for years. How did he take to your independence as a painter? Well, I think my sister and brother have been wonderful. I mean, I mean, he was a farmer. Uh, my sister uh, was a teacher, like my mother. Um, and they've always been very sort of supportive and, and kind of proud. I mean, they don't seem to be sort of jealous or anything. I mean, we don't have a lot in common, apart from being brothers and sisters. But... Yeah. I, I, I have some questions here which Goody. were brought together by people in the Freud Museum who thought that, you know, there were other ways of asking questions than the kind that I've been asking so far. And I thought I, these, are, these are on a slightly sort of different, sort of different approach. Okay. Um, actually, I'm... Which, which, which is, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, I'm wide awake. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's... I mean, there is a theory that you are, have your best energy or something at the time of day you were born, and I was born early in the morning. So, I mean, I'm always awake by half past four or five in the summer or half past five or six in the winter. And if I lie there, I just worry about everything. So, I, so it's much easier to get up. So you get up and you... Well, I think I can. Yeah, I mean, if I'm in Suffolk, I, uh, <coughs> on the whole, go and draw the sea very early in the morning when there's no one about. The sea's all mine, and back to the studio to start work. And uh, in London, take the dogs to the park, and back at the studio and work. You know, you're sort of saying that, and everything is the possibility of the whole new day. 
you know? They've just got at you or anything. By the evening you need to drink. But, I mean, first thing in the morning, it's all optimism, new day, everything possible. That, that for me, just, uh, there's a couple of other questions I want to ask about, about the scene. I don't know how many people were able to see the terrific exhibition that I think's just finished, that Maggie had recently, of waves. It's called The Wave. Many of the paintings there were really quite small, sort of wonderful individual kind of studies. Now, you were just saying you went out and you drew the scene, and you went back to studio and painted. Here's me getting back into the art history, sorry, but did you... You didn't paint by the sea. You painted in the studio. You don't when you you don't ever paint in the open air. No, I haven't no. done that for years. No. no. Um, I did in uh, the seventies, mm. uh, and then there were the Suffolk sunrises of the eighties. They were all the watercolours done on the spot. Uh, but now it, I don't even look at these drawings. You know, I just go there and draw to sort of get into the rhythm of the thing again each day. You know. Mm. It's just like, you know, the pianist practicing a scale or something. And then come back and, uh, and paint, yeah. And are, they, are those paintings partly sort of memories of a particular experience in front of the sea? Because each one is so different. I just Well, every wave is different from every other wave. And you remember, you just, yes, I know. The light's mean? changing and the seasons and everything's changing. Yes. So it's, it's the kind of, you, you've been watching sort of drawing them, and then you go back and you paint, you, do you do more than one a day of those waves? Are they? I don't know. No. People always ask me how long does a painting mm. take, but it's no answer. I mean, some paintings happen very quickly, other, mm. other paintings chug on and I do things to them over, say, two or three years. You know, there's no rule to it. Do you have a dream? This is, this is another question from <laughs> internal here. Do you have a dream of paintings when you finish them? No, when I finish them. No. Do you no, dream when you're painting? It would be a waste of dreaming. But you dream when, <coughs> but when you're doing them, you dream? Oh, certainly, certainly. Yes. And then, you know, in the dream, usually I can absolutely uh, see what's the next thing to do. Or in a dream, I can, uh, you know, it's all going fantastically. And I see the answers to everything in a dream. And then, then I can go and do it next day to the painting. And, hardly ever works. <laughs> is that quite regular? You do dream... Oh, yeah, yeah. I, you know, yes. I'm really boring. I dream my work. I, you know, in the middle of, I don't know, some quite other occasion, suddenly uh, something will resolve itself. I mean, you know, if you're an artist, it's sort of happening all the time, whether you're asleep, dreaming, not dreaming, whatever you're doing, it's, it happens all the time, daydream. I don't think I do a lot of that. Mm. Um, I'm not sure that I do enough thinking. I mean, when uh, the last time I went to a therapist for Inhamstead, <laughs> you know, I was reminded that I didn't, you know, uh, I'm such a sort of person to get on with things and do things. I probably don't sort of sit and think enough. I think I'm rather afraid of sitting and thinking. Because, of course, you can think so much that you don't paint the picture. You know, and the great instinct is just to do the painting, do it. Uh, and I think possibly I should sort of uh, think a bit more than I do. I think I'm afraid of thinking. Is that psychological enough? Or <laughs> you're afraid of thinking. You're afraid of you're afraid of thinking about your well. Your you know this sort of you know this kind of still calm thing supposed to be such a good thing. I find that very difficult. Mm. I'd rather be at it, you know, sort of physically, kind of 
you know, it's a physical kind of thing, yeah. pain. Um, but I'm sort of training myself, I think, to uh, be a bit calmer, and certainly the, 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 the therapy made me think about things, and uh, it did make me a bit more calm about it. But I don't think I'm any good at, uh, uh, at all at, uh, what is that? people sit on the floor and do yoga meditation meditation, meditation yeah I'm, you see um, I think I'm so much a doer and getting on with things and I think that uh, I think I try to be a bit more meditative but I'm still not very good at it you said the last time you went to therapy I mean how many times have you twice in my life and for how long each time can you well the first one the first time uh, I only went for three months. It was quite a well-known, what people like to call therapy. it, shrink. I mean, it, it was, uh, he, was, he was a psychoanalyst? Yeah, I yes. think so. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, another part of Hamster, but, you know. Uh, why do you uh, assume it was a he? Mm-hmm. What? Why do you assume it was a he? He or she, sorry. Yeah. Uh, well, she or he? He, he, this was a he. <laughs> usually, usually it was. It was a he. Okay. So it was very big, big, big. I lay, lay on the couch and, uh, and he didn't say anything at all. Nothing at all. And uh, I got rather fed up with it. Did he give you a little prompt at the beginning? Like, what did you dream last night? What? No, no, no. Nothing as long as that. There would be a lot of words that would. No, no. <laughs> I know I must just sort of make a joke of it. But honestly, I came twice a week. It's very, very expensive. Twice a week, it was very, very good. But he just sat there fatly, and I lay on the sofa, not so fatly in those days, and um, couch, and he didn't say anything. And Did you ever challenge him at the end and say, well? <laughs> no, the only challenging thing I ever did to him was when I, um, well, well, all right, what happened was that um, I fell in love. And not with him? No! <laughs> <laughs> and I had to, <laughs> and I had to, so, and I had to get up to go to this uh, session with him, out of bed, okay? And I'd had a bit of champagne. So I drove here, and I just sort of lay on the couch giggling. I was rather happy. And the following week I went, and I didn't lie on the couch, and I sat down and said, oh, that's it. Thank you very much, but I'm not coming back. And the great thing was that he seemed to me to shrink. He seemed, <laughs> this big fat man, seemed to actually get smaller. Was, I think he was a bit upset. He, kept, he really seemed uh, to visually get smaller in front of me. You deflated him right there. Yeah, yeah and he kept sending his bill for that last one. I never paid it. Um, because I was only there for sort of ten minutes saying I wasn't coming back. It was probably wrong not to have paid it, but I didn't. He was a puffer fish, yes. <laughs> I suppose he was a bit of a puffer fish, yes. But, I mean, what, what kind of pushed you to go to him in the first place? Ah, yes, well, you know, it was a lover who was completely mad and went herself to see a psychoanalyst several times a week and told me I should go too. So, you know, I just sort of always do what I'm told. So I did. <laughs> ah, anyway. And you felt, was this a Freudian? Psychoanalyst, do you know what sort I of... I never got to know. No, no. How would I know? <laughs> <laughs> big, big and fat. Not at all. And what about the second one? Oh, the second, well, that was... Um, that was a woman, and, uh, and of 
enormous help here. I don't think, you know, actually it made any difference of man or woman, it's their approach. And this one did say something. Actually. She did, yes, yeah. from time to time. Yes. Say things. <laughs> you know, a lot more than him. And uh, I remember, <coughs> I remember actually during the course of it, I mean, that's quite a, quite a few years. Uh, if I was born in 1945, when was I 60? I'm no good at maths. 2005? That's right, yes. I went then until it's quite last recent. year. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. recent. And I do remember <coughs> um, turning to look at her from the couch and saying, why is it that everyone close to me is completely stark staring mad? <laughs> and she just looked at me and we both laughed. I mean, inferring, <laughs> obviously, that I was completely mad myself to that everybody sort of supposed to be. No, I would have thought it was the, that you were the most sane person. Well, I you think so. I mean, I think so, but then most yeah. people do, don't they? Mm, they most of us sure. think we're sane, don't we? And everybody yeah. else is mad? <laughs> I do. <laughs> and you stopped going after four years because yeah, yeah. that was yeah. that was it. Yeah, you yeah. felt that was and it, it was an enormous, an enormous help. Mm. And uh, so you would speak about dreams or whatever on the couch or just well, uh, past people, childhood, people, problems. I mean, the childhood would come up. But Did the childhood emerge as an important part of the therapy? Well, I don't know. These things come up and go away. And in a way, you're sort of a I found I was in a sort of haze about it all. It's just that I would sometimes arrive in a, a very mixed up state about everything and come out feeling a bit healed, you know. And did uh, you change your work? Not a bit. Not a bit. <laughs> I mean, I was worried about that. I was worried about that. Because, I mean... When I had a hysterectomy, I mean, I put that off for a couple of years because I thought all well, my creative thing would get no more womb, no more creative. But, uh, rubbish. You know, well, rubbish. You know, fine. And the same with the, with the shrinky business. Um, I think it only, in my case, I mean, and I'm sure many of other people, only does, does good. I mean, a huge, enormous help. Did you say any of your work was inspired by No. No. I, I mean, for, 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 I think, at least the first year, I sit on a chair and talk like this. And then I thought, well, you know, you may as well go the whole hog and lie on the couch sort of thing. But it was rather to do with the fact I was beginning to fancy her. <laughs> so I thought if I lay on the couch, I couldn't see her, so we just concentrate on the problems, you know. Did you tell her that? Oh, yes. Yes, they like that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might even be part of the, uh, the process <laughs> in some respects. I, I think this is a moment perhaps to invite some other questions as we're getting very sort of close to home. I'd like to ask about the, the painting that I can see. I can see you, the main figure there. Some of it's blocked up. But I'm quite intrigued that so much is very precise and very clear lines. And, and then I look at your hands, the two, the one holding the brush and the, and the glass, which are quite blurred, and some other bits are blurred, and there's only half your face. And I just wonder if you can, what you make of that. But I suppose my hands are always the sort of active thing that I work with, and they're sort of moving all the time. I suppose that could have something to do with it. Uh, and, I mean, the, the, my first London show was, uh, in 73, was of 
portraits are portraits, single portraits of people from memory in pubs, sort of lonely figures, single figures, uh, and <clears throat> quite often they only had one eye. I mean, some of them only had one eye. And so I've been asked in later years why that person only had one eye. Well, the fact was I could only remember one eye. Now, I didn't draw in these pubs. I went and trained the visual memory. If somebody, I found somebody moving, moved me, you know, touching kind of person. I would sort of try and commit them to memory. I'd look at the person and look away and see if I'd got that eyebrow or that nostril or something like that. And go straight back. Ah, uh, only drink half a bitter. Straight back to the studio and paint from memory, right? And quite a lot of them, quite, quite a lot of those portraits only had one eye. And uh, I think it happened again with this. I mean, <coughs> there are moments. I mean, painting or making anything is not entirely masochistic. It just mostly is, okay? But there are the moments, occasionally, when something goes right. And I felt something was right about that obviously very quick bit of face there. It went right for once, okay? And so I think, you know, and I'd left the other half blank. And then, I don't know. I don't know where these decisions come from. You know, it just seemed right. I mean, if you're looking at a, as I was informed, a turn in the sky, <laughs> if you're looking at a turn, it's sort of, one eye is occupied with a turn. I don't know where it came from. It just happened. I mean, a lot of, you know, the, when you're really working, the thing just happens. You're not in charge of it. You're not. You go with it. As Brancusi said, it's not difficult to make a work of art. The difficulty lies in being the right state to do it. In other words, the receptive state, so that the subject can take you over and let it paint itself, and you feel quite good for a moment. So this is painted your own face from memory rather than in a mirror? You look, weren't looking in a mirror? No. 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 I know what I look like, Dawn. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, most people would be hard pushed to draw themselves from memory. But... Uh, so, so often paintings that look as if they are very much you in front of the subject are actually you've painted from memory. I mean, imagination is 99% memory, I think. So. Yeah. And I did train my visual memory quite early on with those pub people. Mm. Yes. So what's yeah. memory, what's imagination, what's... I know that when I painted A.J.P. Taylor for the National Portrait Gallery, <clears throat> by this time he was an old people's home in, I don't know, like Hendon or somewhere, and it was a little room, and he, he was really a bit gaga, well, completely gaga. And his wife would come and sort of try to help the thing along. I mean, I met Easel there, he was there, and she'd say, she'd say, come on, Alan, pose for Maggie. And he'd go, well, it's... <laughs> 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 still very funny. And, he went one, and then he went off to the loo one day, I remember, and came back, and he peered round the door of his room at the painting, he said, Looks very serious. Must be a politician. You know. <clears throat> and then he'd sit again. One morning when she wasn't there, he took all his clothes off. I mean, this is sort of perils of being a portrait painter. Anyway, so I could not have made that painting okay um, unless I had this very strong childhood memory of A.J.P. Taylor on television. You know, which uh, uh, you know, telling telling us history as if it was secrets. I mean, he was sort of magic on television. You know if you're old enough to remember that. You know, and uh, I had this very strong memory of him on television, so that portrait was done half from memory of him on television and half from what was in front of me, this uh, person really in another world. When you started, when you were 14, and yeah. you were encouraged by this art teacher, yep. and I remember those, you know, I remember painting myself at school, in the school art room, what kind of thing were you 
painting? Did you did you do what you wanted to do? Did you do what the class was doing? How just what sort of things were you drawn to then? Well, I think we was we were set subjects, yes. Sort of still we, lives and occasionally. No, 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 we didn't no. know no sure no. on still life. Thank God. Um, no, more imaginative subjects. And, you know, when I started painting in oils, I would go out and paint uh, the landscape around the school and things. It was more kind of real. I mean, that's a terrible thing that I think happens now with children in schools, as far as I understand it. They're, you know, they're told to make a copy of something in a comic or a newspaper or something, a photograph, you know, what's the point of that? Crushing whatever's inside them. Might have plenty of artists about, you know, just turn it over the lot. Is there still life drawing in Camberwell? Were you doing life drawing? Camberwell, yes, 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 yes. You know, we all, I made sort of ventures into everything that was going on in the 60s, you know, abstract expressionism, pop art, uh, op art, all those things. But, and I, but I did work consistently in the life room. It wasn't very fashionable. And you did it all, all, all along. And nobody had any faces. It was the time, I mean, the models in the paintings had no faces. You know, it was time, time of all that rather post-Arbachian churning about in a lot of earth colours, right? And people like Francis Hoyling it. No, no, he was teaching. He was teaching. He was painting himself, going, making noises like that. Uh, so I did my best to do a, a sort of trompe-l'oeil life painting, you know, sort of absolutely as, you know. Uh, and, and then I went, which is a bit sort of uh, questionable really, but I remember going up to the model in the, in the, the rest and, say, and looking closely and saying, I see, yes, blue eyes, right. And then going back and putting blue eyes in, you know, which actually, according to the light, I couldn't actually have seen at that moment whether they were blue or brown. But it was the point of make, trying to make, paint a person who this model was, rather than just <coughs> for a thigh and <coughs> for a shoulder. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. You know, making a, paint, trying to paint a real-life person sitting in front instead of some formulaic kind of churn-up of, you know, burnt yes. Did he try and discourage you from painting? No, 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 no. I mean, I did ask Ewan Uglow after the first three weeks at Camberwell if he would mind not teaching me for the next three years. <laughs> <laughs> and he kept away. It's mostly a question of keeping people away, you know, unless you really like them. Um, I think of him as somebody who's this, this sort of doing the measuring. Exactly. Is that right? Later yeah. described to me by David Brown, later for Tate, as... Uh, that school of English painting that is so afraid of nature dare only look at it with her eyes half closed. <laughs> very good. Yeah, very good. When well, you look at, when you go to, if you do, a great art galleries like the National Gallery, but all over the place, what are particular painters that you look for that you very much admire? Do you feel kind of inspired by? Well, I suppose I've got sort of a top six. Yes. Do you want to name it top six? Yes. <laughs> yes. The Premier Division. Okay, Ronnie Rembrandt. Um, <laughs> Ronnie Rothko. Van Gogh. Um, Cite, uh, Painters Today, Cy Twombly, my much my favourite. I mean, people come and go. I mean, Goya comes and goes. Titian comes and goes. I think Titian actually would have to be in there. Ah, uh, definitely. And other people come and go. I mean, Matisse comes and goes. I mean, a lot of those people are like aunties who I have been 
very keen on, but they're always there. And then at a particular time. But I mean, Van Gogh, Rembrandt, Roscoe, and I go so far as to say, Cy Twombly, as far as I can say, would always be there, and others come and go. And I think all of them have the sort of handwriting, you know? I mean, you know, the thing about drawing being the most intimate thing that an artist does, because it, quite physically it's just sort of usually one instrument making a mark on a piece of paper. It's the, it's the most direct. You haven't actually got to put a brush in the paint and pick up the paint and put it on the painting. So that sort of direct, <coughs> intimate thing like handwriting is uh, very important to me. If I hate photography in all its form, you better not go there. Oh, we can go there. What? We can go there. Well, I can have a little <laughs> rant about photography. About photography. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, and he's my very good friend, Avon McCabe. He lives very close to me in Suffolk. He's my very good friend who's done all these photographs of artists. Um, and I think his photographs of artists are very good. But uh, I do think, I mean, personally, I think photography has rather taken over some, so many places. I mean, National Portrait Gallery, all over the place. But photo- photography, photography, photography. And you see, basic, I think a photograph is a thing that's happened. I mean, if you look at that photograph of me, it's a very nice photograph. I wasn't wearing the scar at the time, for some odd reason. Anyway, anyway, it's a photograph. It's happened, right? It's history, okay? It's done. It's there, it is, with a nice mountain. It's politely behind glass, okay? So it's very sort of easy. And everyone's used to looking at television, including me. But, but if you look at a late Titian, a late Titian, you stand in front of that, and it's as if it's happening in front of you. You know, you feel, because of the physicality of the paint, and the frailty of the human touch, um, that it's happening in front of you now. And that is something that painting, great painting, can have. The photography can never have. You know, it's boring, it's history, it's a trick of the light of the time, mechanically made. I mean, the vulnerable human bit is the moving bit. I mean, look at Van Gogh. I mean, you know, it's all there. That struggle, that, to get at the truth, that, you know, with, made with the hands. I, you know, call me old-fashioned, but I believe in it. Yes? You have included a photograph in your self-portrait. In the distance, in the background. (laughs) In the background. (laughs) Here's the paint in front of the photograph, Okay. Steady in the background. But Maggie, if a photograph is taken by an artist, I think that an artist can bring a different dimension, I would hope. Are you a photographer of some kind? And a painter. I see you do both. (laughs) What a (laughs) whore! And a therapist. Love. Man for all seasons. I suppose I think when you said that, that I uh, I can... can, uh, a photograph can sometimes stay within the present because if you're an artist and you take a photograph, it isn't the image. It's it's well, first of all, it's how you see that image, it's sort of how you take the image, but also it's what you do with the image after. Well, and, that could be. And so, I don't like overprocessed images, but but I think you can. I think there are some photographs that are absolutely can be absolutely as um, moving, as touching, or profound as. A well, I'm not denying there have been great photographers. I'm not denying that. I think that uh, Brass, I mean, various people have been great photographers. I'm not too keen on that Leibovitch woman. Because I think, <coughs> I think, you know, all her photographs look, you know, people look as if they've been Leibovitched. Do you know what I mean? It's nothing, it's nothing to do with portraiture. It's nothing to do with them, the person. I mean, all the, if I paint someone's portrait, um, 
you know, I'm just a sort of, I try to be the kind of channel for them to come through me onto the canvas or whatever, right? And it's to do with them. They're the subject. They're in command, okay? Well, those poor buggers leave of it. I mean, they just look, it's just her. You know, it's nothing to do with them. I don't think they're portraits. But, I mean, I have used photography, I mean, uh, as a sort of what I believe used to be called in art schools, source of material. <coughs> um, for a couple of paintings of people laughing, because, you know, on the whole, unfortunately, laughter is a very, laugh is a very quick thing. Right? I love all the sort of sexy things of the chaos of the face and the abandon of it, you know. And I've uh, made a whole series of laugh paintings. Um, but the thing is there and it's gone, right? And I have used a couple of photographs uh, in a couple of portraits, one of Lett laughing and one of my Venturi laughing because he needed a bit of information. I mean, the only person who could pose for me laughing was Max Wall. And he could pose the three quarters of an hour laughing convincingly <laughs> and then before we had a break and then he could start again <laughs> but I mean you know he was Max Hall he was a comedian so <coughs> he could do it you know but it, so I have used the photograph a couple of times but only um, <coughs> like that and there is a painting of mine in Newhall Cambridge called Gulf Women Prepare for War which was done by inspired by a photograph of the newspaper those women with rocket launchers so, I mean, it has happened in now and again with my work, but I still stick to my thing. I've got to fight my corner as a painter, okay? The physical paint, right? As opposed to the mechanical click. Any more questions? I want, well, I think there are several more, but I want to say something now. Okay. Um, I'm just wondering whether, actually, the photograph, and like you, there are some wonderful melancholic photographs of the 19th century, which I think are the best photography ever. But do you think, Maggie, that... But the photograph, in a sense, liberated portraiture, including self-portraits, from the kind of theatricality that Annie Leibovitz um, has, in, has actually continued. I mean, she, in a way, belongs to the tradition of the great 18th or 17th century portrait, which is somebody in, their, in all their kind of regal finery and so on. It's not actually necessarily them. So I'm just, I'm just wondering whether that's, what, that's where she's taken the photograph, whereas your... Uh, you know, studies of the person can be much more direct, if you like, um, or take many more liberties or risks with the portrait than before photography, I don't know. Well, uh, <coughs> I mean, photography was invented a um, long while ago, wasn't it? Everybody thought it was the end of painting, yeah, painting and, but it, and it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, because painting is different, as I as I tried to say. There's a lovely story of Bacon being asked quite late in his life, um, because you know, so you know, his work inspired by Potemkin and you know, the Mybridge and all those that photographic imagery. He was asked by an interviewer if he if he'd had his life again, what he would like to have done, and, and the, the anticipated answer was that he would like to have been a film director. Do you know what he said? He was asked. Bacon, as your life again, what would you like to have been? Do you know what he said? A mother. Don't you love it? Don't you love it? Hey, what a shame when that man was. Don't you love it? Did you give it a second thought? I put it in the garage, actually. 
I never know, knew what to do with this painting. It's a very odd painting. I, I, uh, I put it in the garage. I, you know, it's a bit big to have around. And I put it in the garage. And, uh, and several, several years later, I don't know on the date when it was acquired by the National Portrait Gallery, but um, the National Portrait Gallery, uh, a friend of mine who worked there, came along and said, we have, uh, we have um, some money to buy a painting given by John Clare. <laughs> Lovely <Yes>. people. <laughs> All right. Lovely people. You know, who used to sponsor things, give their money. Wonderful. Um, anyway, and uh, so he said, well, we'd like to, you know, we would like to buy a painting of yours. I hadn't got much in the studio. I said, oh, God, there is that, oh, there's that self-portrait in the garage, but I haven't looked at it for ages, and you don't want to, you know, it's a bit of a nuisance to undo the garage. And all that. So, so anyway, he persuaded me to undo the garage, and there was this painting. And, um... And your smoke corpse. And so, it, uh, there it was. Um, and, then, and now, obviously, you know, it's the centre of attention. Does it make you look at it in a different way? And, you know... Well, it's quite funny. I mean, the first reaction is that it, at the National Portal Gallery, it actually looks quite small. But when I walked into this room <laughs> and saw it hanging there, it looks quite big. Which only goes to show that everything is, you know, proportional, whatever the word is. So here, it, well, as I've said, it seems quite big. Well, it's stayed quite fresh, hasn't it? Quite nice. I'm, quite, I'm fond of it. It is, it is funny to uh, see it work looks, from It looks writing. very spacious, too. There are some, very, a lot of spaces in it. You think I should have filled all this in? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> opening it up. It's, uh, what? It's a thought. It's quite nice that there are spaces. Yeah. On the other hand, um, I'm see a, I can imagine myself being tempted to fill in, you know, to put more things in. Or, did you consciously stop at a certain point and thought, that's enough? Look, uh, it's well known the most difficult decision in the whole business is when to stop. You know, paintings come alive and die a lot of times. If they die too often and finally die, you have to uh, get rid of them, destroy them, okay? Uh, but that thing is very, very tricky. I don't know. I don't know why I decided that was enough. I really can't account for it. I mean, it's what I decided. I mean, this is where I get quite cross with art historians. Um, <laughs> art historians, you've heard of them, Dawn. Um, art historians, <laughs> when <coughs> they say... They're writing a big book on someone like Manet or something, and they say unfinished. Well, how the fuck do they know? <laughs> I mean, the point is that the artist has left that canvas. How do they think they're so clever as to know that the, 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 the artist hadn't stopped when that was the moment to stop? They're not apologising for them. <laughs> <laughs> do you agree with me, perhaps? I don't oh, know. Of course I agree with you. Yeah, yeah <laughs> good. Well, you know what I mean. I think it's very presumptuous to say unfinished. Yeah, I mean. You know, they're not in a position to know. This business of when you finish is very tricky. Unless it was left on the easel and, and in a world... Oh, and they died. <laughs> That's a tricky one. That is a tricky one. That is an unknown one. But quite often they haven't died. You know. And they should be unfinished. Exactly. One unfinished picture. Yes, stop it about photography and one of the paintings one of your paintings that I most admire is your portrait of Dorothy Hodgkin in the National Portrait 
gallery in which she has her arms doing various things, as you have here. And I wondered whether that was a handling idea or whether you'd be looking at my bridge. Nothing to do with my bridge. No? I might have been taken by a friend of mine to see one or two of those uh, Indian uh, ladies right, with a lot okay. of hands. But I mean, not consciously. I mean, the thing about the thing about um, Dorothy Hodgkin was that I mean, she's very, very gracious. She took me. All, I went to see her about doing this portrait of her for the portrait gallery. And she was very gracious. And she said, "Well, you know, I'll do whatever you would like. I will sit in here, or we'll go to another room where I'll sit in here, or." She would prepare to do whatever I wanted. And then we went to where she worked every day. She said, well, you know, I come in here and work, and this is where I sit at night. And uh, so I knew immediately that's where I wanted to paint her, you know, and let her get on with her work, because that was the point. There's no point having Dorothy Hodgkin sitting in a chair like that. You know, she was, she was, you know, her work. And so I was sort of in a dark corner of the room, and she was in the light, the light coming in from the window, you know, onto all, everything she was doing. And... Her hands did, you know, the famous hands drawn by Henry Moore, full of arthritis from her 20s. And they were going all over the place like little animals, you know, holding the magnifying glass, holding a pen, doing all this stuff with that. It just happened in the drawing. It wasn't a conscious decision. It's just, you know, I would start with making a drawing first, uh, charcoal on a piece of paper to discover the composition. And, and all these hands just happened because that's what she was doing. And so that happened. And then I found the same thing. I made one drawing on the first morning and then started to paint the next morning and, and the same thing happened in the painting but it wasn't a conscious thing. I suppose the conscious thing was letting them stay there, you know, because they just happened and the conscious thing was letting them stay there. Marvellous woman, closest woman, closest person I've ever met to a walking saint. I mean, there in her 70s, working away every day at all her you know, very important work with insulin and all the rest of it and during the week I stayed with her doing that portrait. Uh, she was telephoned First of all, a, 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 a young reporter from a local paper came to interview her halfway through the week. It was the evening. I was sitting drawing her in a sketchbook. She was reading newspaper or something. This young reporter came and started to ask Dorothy, I mean, questions of such banality. It was embarrassing. Such, you know, this is great woman. She was asking her questions like, so where did you get your frocks or something? You know? <laughs> and it was embarrassing. And... And, and she just, Dorothy Hodgkin treated her with such patience, such grace, such charm. I mean, I would have thrown out here. I mean, incredible. And then I remember on the Thursday, she was telephoned by Pugwash Scientists for Peace, of which she was the chairman then. And they wanted her to leave just in two days' time to go to Japan for a conference. And she just said, well, if, if you need me, I will be there. Bloody saint. <coughs> you know, I mean, that's uh, again, I mean, that's part of the portrait of things, is I have met some incredible. Do you talk while you're painting something? Certainly not. <laughs> we talk at the breaks. No, when I'm working on the thing, it's so subjective, you know. When I painted George Reddit, which is also in the portrait gallery, he said, there was a big canvas, and he said, I would. <laughs> I appeared around the side of it like an escaped mink. <laughs> <coughs> and he said, I do these funny little movements and like little dancing steps and things. I don't know about that. I don't know what I do. And I and pull terrible faces, apparently. But I, I, I don't know about that. You know, we talk in the breaks. But when I'm in it, it's so concentrated. You, you um, seem 
you have an unwavering kind of belief in your, in your ability to be creative. And I just wondered if you've ever had a crisis in your thinking. Bloody hell! <laughs> <coughs> this is a Freud Museum. Okay, it's a Freud Museum. You're all loonies, yeah? <laughs> Has what been my enemy? Your work. Your work has ever become your enemy rather than your friend. Well, uh, it's an app. I mean, it's quite a good question, really. It is. Of course, you know, when without being melodramatic, I go through a great deal of doubt, a great deal of despair. I quite often ask myself, what the hell I think I'm doing? I'm not an artist at all. You know, you, uh, one does get the deepest, deepest, deepest self-doubt and each time it happens really badly I find uh, that I've forgotten the last time when it happened really 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 badly you know you get over it um, and you kind of forget that it's all part of the thing you know this is easy to say this is part of the process I hate that word but I mean a great why do you think I get up at five o'clock in the morning or whatever it is you know if I lay there the doubts the doom the gloom the despair uh, would would be, you know, piling up. And so I get up and start, and then I feel better. That's why it's therapeutic, to get back to the beginning. And, of course, I go through the most enormous... I mean, one is one's own best critic, and it, if it's no good at all unless you are self-critical. And I, I go through hell quite a lot of the time with it, actually, and think, you know, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? Um, I'm no good at it. I'm just a pretender. I mean, all this goes on. All this goes on. Um, and I, well, I don't think it probably works unless you do have all that. I mean, if you are sort of pleased with yourself, I don't. I think it kind of stays still. You know, I'm a great. You know, I always say life dictates what I paint, and I believe that. You know, if uh, somebody dies, like George Melly dies. Um, and I sort of went on painting it for two years after he was dead, I suppose because I missed him. I don't know. And if I bought anything to wear, it was usually stripey, because I missed the stripes. I mean, you know, people you love are very deeply inside you, and I suppose it's sort of trying to hang on to them or something. Or you can paint what you couldn't paint while they were alive, all, all that goes on. I don't know how I got on to dead people. How did I get on to dead people? Melly. Yeah, yeah, um, Melly, but... Um, how does that come from the doom and gloom? I don't know. I don't know. You're going to do a yeah. lecture, or you're going to be part of a panel. What? Death and dying at the National Oh, don't mind me. <laughs> Whatever I agree to that, I don't know. <laughs> <coughs> but it was George Melly said I'd go down in art history as Maggie Coffin Hambly. Because <laughs> I always painted dead people. Do you ever destroy it? Yes, a lot, a lot, a lot. And those worst times of the doom and gloom you were asking about is when, um, if any of you know the, my Henrietta book, there's a portrait of her on the front of the book and it's full of the drawings of Henrietta Marais. And that painting on the front of the book, I think I for once timed it. It was a Wednesday morning and it happened in, I think, about three quarters of an hour. But I'd worked on that image, a larger scale of that image, that thing, for three months, right? And it got, you know, it died and died and died and died. And in the end, I thought... And that's the worst times when you've given... You know, you've painted sort of every day on something for three, four months, whatever, and then you realise it's shit. And, you know, that is... You can feel it coming on. <laughs> the depths of the gloom. And somehow, 
like a phoenix, because of all that work, it is possible to rise. And the painting on the front of that book happened in, I think, three quarters of an hour. But only because of all the stuff you'd have to get through first. Well, I think that's actually a very beautiful note to, yeah. to finish. Unless have we been psychological just... enough, Dawn? Have we? Okay. Thank you so much.